Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Women in early America generally could not vote or hold elected office. Their full participation in American democracy would come only after a long and persistent struggle for political equality. That struggle continues still. In fact, this year we celebrated the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, and next year we'll celebrate its ratification. But this is not to say that early American women, and more specifically elite white women, did not wield considerable political power and influence in American society. Abigail Adams, Peggy Shippen Arnold, and countless others used social politics to advance various agendas. Elizabeth Willing Powell did just that and more. Powell was a prominent Philadelphian who eventually became close to the Washington family. She lived in the city at the heart of the American Rebellion. It was a city that changed hands between the British and the Americans during the war, and with that came opportunity to advance the Powell family's interests with both British and American officials. And in fact, Powell's loyalties were not always clear in the early years of the war. But on today's episode, Samantha Snyder helps us to understand why Powell and her family eventually embraced the revolution. Snyder is the reference librarian here at the Washington Library. He's also a historian working on the history of Powell's life. And Powell, as Sam tells us, was at the center of Philadelphia politics. But her influence reached far beyond the city to the banks of the Potomac and places further afield. Now, this was a fun chat for many reasons, but especially so because you'll hear Sam and I kind of hash out ideas about directions she might take this project. It's a good example of how the stories we tell about the past are born as much in conversation with others as they are in the silence of the archives. Now, just a reminder to like or subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for next week when I'll be joined by Trey Alsop and Sadie Troy. They'll introduce us to a new gaming experience in which students will step into the shoes of some of the early Republic's major figures as they confront a crisis in 1793. You are interested in a woman named Elizabeth Willing Powell. I am. Who is a Philadelphia socialite, but uh, socialite's kind of a weird term when you think about it because she is someone who had enormous political capital, which I think we'll get into, and she used that capital effectively in ways um, that kind of makes me think about, um, you know, there's a Catherine Allegor's book on on. Uh, Peggy Eaton and the mm-hmm. women who built the city of Washington. Mm-hmm. The subtitle of that book, oh, Parlor, Parlor, Parlor Politics. Politics, yeah, um, which is a really terrific book. And it seems like Elizabeth Willing Powell is in the sort of mold of, of those women who yeah. wielded. Yeah, their she influence. was. She was kind of the precursor. She kind of yeah. She yeah was in the mold. I think yeah. So let let's let's talk about. Elizabeth's life a little bit, and then we'll drill down into some of the the details, particularly during the British occupation of Philadelphia in 1778. But um, introduce us to Elizabeth Willing Powell, if you would, please. Sure. Um, Elizabeth Willing Powell was born Elizabeth Willing. Um, she was the sixth of 11 children, 10 of whom survived to adulthood. So she was smack in the middle. Um, she was the product of two very wealthy Philadelphia families, the kind of the original elite, um, the Willings and the Shippens. And um, she grew up in a very privileged lifestyle. Um, not a lot is known about her early life as far as education, which is something mm-hmm. I'm trying to, to look more into. Um, but she, she was just kind of involved at a young age, surrounded by 
many politicians and kind of influential Philadelphia figures. She ended up marrying into the Powell family, which was another wealthy family, a merchant merchant family. Um, and through that, she began really kind of staking her claim in the the world of the Philadelphia elite. And so you mentioned that she was born into, she was the product of two prominent, powerful families in this period, the, the Willings and the Shippens. So um, let's take the Willings first, and then we'll get to the Shippens, who I, was, I suspect some listeners probably some, already recognize, some probably recognize, that, recognize name. that name for, for another powerful woman <laughs> yes. who exerted yes. her influence on, on major figures in the revolutionary exactly. period. But uh, who are the Willings? So the Willings, um, they, they're, they're known in a way that isn't quite to the level of the Shippens, I would say. So tell us about Charles Willing, the, the kind of founder of the, well, not necessarily the founder of the family, but he's, he's Elizabeth's father, and he is a man of some prominence in Philadelphia. Yes, yes. He was the first of the Willings to kind of stay in Philadelphia, um, and he was a merchant. He ran a very successful business. Uh, He was involved in the politics of Philadelphia. He was the mayor, um, I believe, twice. And then, sadly, he did die very young. He died when he was only in his 40s. Um, Mm. So he kind of fell away. And then her oldest brother, Thomas, took over that that name and continued on and became more and more of a a prominent financier during the Revolutionary War. So, So. and Elizabeth was 11 when her father passed away, is that correct? Yes. And so then there's, there's the other side of this. Which is the Shippen family, which, of course, uh, is uh, most well-known for Peggy Shippen Arnold, yes. who is the uh, wife of one Benedict Arnold. Yes, yes. And Elizabeth's first cousin once removed. That's what I have figured out. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean once? I never understood what, what once removed means. Well, it's her, it's her cousin's daughter. Her cousin's daughter. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought that meant second cousin, but I no, don't know. I you know I did too. But then I was looking at some family history description of all of those keywords and their positions in the family, and it ended up that that oh. that's something. And I don't quite get the once removed thing, but that's that's what I read. So first well, cousin once removed, removed from something, <laughs> I suppose. So Elizabeth, you mentioned at the top here that Elizabeth didn't have much of an education, you know, which well, is, well, but, but yes, yes and no. no. Okay. Yes and no. I, I don't know about a formal education as far as any kind of going to an official right. school. Not the way we think of education yeah. in a modern sense. Yeah. But I mean, she, she knew French. Mm-hmm. I've kind of discovered that as I, as I've done my research. Um, she actually translated a letter from um, oh, Luzerne. Yeah, Luzerne, mm-hmm. um, who had written to George Washington. And she actually, there's two translations of the letter included with the original French letter, and one is in her hand, um, the other oh, is in really? Tobias Lear's hand. So she clearly, she knew French. Mm-hmm. She had excellent handwriting. She knew arithmetic. I mean, I think she had kind of a, she had a, she had an education. And I would imagine as, as the daughter of a wealthy, prominent family, she's, she's probably got access to books and, oh, and, absolutely. and uh, yes. other things in her yes. father's library or, you know, being Philadelphia, you know, side of, of, uh, Franklin's library. Yeah. And so they've, yeah. they've got yeah. that going for yeah. them there too. <laughs> um, and there's a relationship between Franklin and Powell we can come back to in a, Liz- uh, in a little bit. So she eventually does marry 
And her husband's name was Samuel. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. And, and what year are they wed? They are married in August of 1769. And what are, and what do we know about Sam? So he did he was... go by Sam or did I just make that? Up? <laughs> I like to think he did, although yeah. he seemed to be a very serious man, so he might not have liked Sam. He he was probably a proper Samuel. Could have been could have been Sam, but definitely not Sammy. Kind of like me. Nice. <laughs> Not Sammy. <laughs> um, but but good old Sam, good old Samuel. He uh, he was born into a very um, uh, to a Quaker family, and actually did the whole Grand European tour, um, oh, and mm-hmm. was in Europe for I believe five years, um, traveling alongside Joseph Morgan, the or John Morgan, traveling alongside John Morgan, um, prominent Philadelphia physician mm-hmm. who was trained in Edinburgh. Um, and he he ended up coming back in 1765. Kind of began working in the in the merchant business as well. I still have not determined how he and Elizabeth met, but mm-hmm. I I know they both attended assemblies and and that sort of thing. So it might have been something through that. Um, he did do work with her family. Was so. she was she a Quaker? Was so she so dancing assemblies is what I mean. The oh, the mm-hmm. so actually I should say this too. Um, Samuel renounced the Quaker religion and became an Anglican while he was in Europe, much oh, to see. the dismay of his of his family. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was when he was overseas, and then he came back and he became very involved in um, Christchurch. He became a, a, a vestryman in Christchurch. Oh, okay, and and uh, Saint uh, Saint Peter's. Church. So that and so they're a somewhat of a young couple by the time the revolution breaks out. Mm-hmm. They are establishing their own household. They're, you know, they're, they're building on the social relationships that, that come with being members of a prominent family. But then the war breaks out. And what I find particularly interesting about Elizabeth, and, and we talk about Samuel as well, certainly, because he's a, he's a big part of this, mm-hmm. but there, it's not an instantaneous decision of whether to side with the Americans or with the British. It yeah, seems like for a long time they fall into this camp of, of Americans who are sort of waiting to see what happens and and less interested in making a decision until they're, they absolutely are forced to do so. And mm-hmm. So what what is it about their background that leads them to try to find a, a neutral position for the first few years of the war? Well, I think part of it, kind of the main part of it, is that they were in a pretty cushy situation. They were pretty stable in their finances. Um, they were moving right along just fine under under the prior to the prior to the revolution. Um, and they did not have children. They lost all four of their children when oh. they were either infants or stillborn. So they were kind of just in a in a comfortable situation and really didn't need any changes necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think that was kind of the first bit of it was they were fine as is and they were in prominent enough families that they didn't really need yeah, they didn't need a change, mm-hmm. I think. So the status quo was working for them. Yes, yes. Um, it wasn't any uh, out of some desire to, you know, not betray the king, for example, nor upset rebel neighbors. It was... Yeah. It was more just, I think they, they were fine where they were at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which yeah. is, I mean, that's, that's not unusual for a lot of loyalists or, well, potential loyalists or potential mm-hmm. rebels, as mm-hmm. we know. Um, 
you know, a lot of folks are, are trying to figure out, you know, which side to join. And I think sometimes we get this idea that it was a instantaneous reaction. Yes, like, exactly. Like, yeah, like... Oh, Lexington and Concord. Yes, and now you, I am a rebel. You like, knew yeah. which side you were on, yep. but it's really not, you know, certainly as scholars like Maya Jasanoff and Mary Beth Norton have shown, like, yep. people take a lot of time to think about the choices that they're going to make. And so when they're in this sort of holding pattern, I guess you might say, which is anachronistic because there's no airplanes at that point, <laughs> but... What are they doing in Philadelphia? I mean, it, the, the city becomes the nascent capital of this rebelling mm-hmm. colonial mm-hmm. movement. Mm-hmm. Um, it's where Congress sits, but it's also a, a location where the British eventually capture it yeah, in, in 1778. And so, you know, what's what are they doing in these in these years before they finally make make a decision? You know, it's it's a little hard to say because there's not a lot of primary source evidence that that survives from that time. There's only, I think, two letters, and their financial records really don't show a lot. They are just kind of living day-to-day lives. They're purchasing mm-hmm. a lot of firewood. Um, but I think they are just they're they're, you know, they're they're stepping forward from the loss of their children. Mm-hmm. And um, I think they're they're building themselves up as a as a social center, which I think that really comes more into the 1780s, mm-hmm. where that seems to be when they really get their footing. But um, they're 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 just living their lives. Trying to make as, the best. Of the, yeah, they're trying they to make can. the best of the situation. Yeah. Is there any evidence? I'm uh, speaking of the financial records that they're still engaged in any of the Atlantic trade, or has that been, or you know, with you know, for example, we know that, you know, various merchants at various times traded with both the British and the Americans. And so are they, is there evidence that they are engaged in that kind of conduct? And it seems like at that point, they're really not like, I, yeah, it doesn't seem like they're doing much trading at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and the war is probably hindering that. A, a good yeah, deal of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so 1778, um, the British take the capital. Um, they occupy, uh, they drive Congress out, you know, Congress retreats, they, they occupy Philadelphia. What, what is the Powell's relationship like with the occupying forces? At first, it doesn't seem to be much of, of, of either anger or happiness by Mm -hmm. any means. Um, they... They don't att- they there's no evidence of of people visiting their house or anything like that. They sadly again, there's not much primary source evidence to mm-hmm. really they kind of seem to kind of skirt under the radar um, because they're not showing up in any of these things. However, eventually, in about April of seventeen seventy eight um, their house their their estate and her sister's estate are ransacked and burned, mm-hmm. and that is where you see a switch and suddenly you're seeing their emotions and mm-hmm. and how they're feeling about the the British occupying Philadelphia. Um, there's a fantastic letter, one of the two letters that survives from the the entire the 1770s, um, where Elizabeth is writing to her sister, explaining what happened um, to their homes. And that's when you finally see an emotional charge. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes them until, it takes Samuel um, to make any kind of formal switch, I would say, um, and signing the Oath of Allegiance. He signs it in May, shortly before 
the British leave Philadelphia. So, and um, so it's your sense, Annie, as we talked about that they're they're trying, you know, to make the best of a difficult situation. But it seems like also that they're trying to protect their interests as best they can. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. At the, and at that point, you know, they have to make a choice. And I mean, I guess in a lot of ways, it seems like it's typical of of what you might call late patriots. Yes, absolutely, um, absolutely. I think I just, there are there there is a notion of late loyalists. So I think I just coined a term, late patriots. I like that. I like that. That's that's exactly what they were. But um, you know, people who either through you know a particular engagement or as an example of you know having your home ransacked finally deciding okay yeah it finally it it took until it affected them personally i would say mm-hmm. because i think before that they were just again kind of skirting under the radar but suddenly their their home was their their i think elizabeth uses the phrase our terrestrial goods were were <laughs> destroyed like those yeah. of the old and i think it it really took that happening for them to finally you know, begin to change. So there's um, there's no real ideological... Would you say that there's there's no real ideological commitment uh, either way then? It's just all... A lot of it's about self-interest and... and yeah, yeah. ...in defense of the very personal home front yes. in a lot of ways. Yeah, I would say it's less about the... Yeah, the, the rebelling against the king, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, and I don't think they really seem to care much about that. Like, and what's interesting... So during this time too, but they, they also are interacting a great deal with the Earl of Carlisle. Yeah. Um, they. So, would, yeah. And so yeah. tell us, tell us about um, his lordship and. Um, yes. So, so that seems to kind of come out of nowhere that suddenly in June of 1778, when he's sent over for the, for the. Oh, for the, the peace commission. For the peace commission. And li- listeners might remember that we briefly mentioned that in an earlier episode with Rachel Hosker. And he he ends up um, taking over the Powell residence um, for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> he occupies the Powell residence, and it's a very personal occupation. It is a very personal occupation. So they are. I've I've read a couple of things as to where exactly he was. He he mentions that he takes over their quarters. Um, there is a letter from Joseph Reed to Esther Reed saying that they've taken over the front room of the Powell House, which that could mean a number of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is there for two weeks, and he expresses guilt in a letter to his wife and a letter to a friend. Um, about taking over this gentleman's quarters. It's one of the most beautiful houses in Philadelphia. Um, but he knows that if someone else took over it, it would um, they would do bad things to the furniture and kind of steal things. But but he's not going to do that. You say something and, like the furniture is very expensive. Yes, the furniture is very expensive. Um, but then kind of the best part of the two letters that he writes home, and they're very similar – um, is when he mentions the pals themselves, mm-hmm. and he says that he takes tea with them every day, and they are the best of friends, and they talk politics. I think is something that he uh-huh. says in the quote, and then um, that he, when he's writing home to his friend, he doesn't say this in the letter to his wife. He says, um, "You would never be out of their company." So it's interesting that just before that. Like a, just over a month before that, their their estate had been ruined, mm-hmm. 
and then Samuel is signing this oath of allegiance, and suddenly they're the best of friends in the world to this peace commissioner yeah. from from England. Right. So here, here's the Earl of Carlisle. He's joined by Adam Ferguson and a couple other folks, and mm-hmm. their mission is to try to convince the colonies to come back home. You know, the British government's willing yeah. to make some concessions, but their their objective is, well, you know, why don't we just sort of roll back this whole independence thing, and you know, we can go. You know, status quo antebellum to 1763, and everything will be fine, and we'll forget all this terrible things <laughs> happen. Forget this all happened. Um, and he's, and do, do you? Is it your sense that the Earl is is attempting? You know, he recognizes the the social prominence of the Powell family at this point. You know, does he? Do you think that this is a way that he is trying to ingratiate himself with the political elite of Philadelphia at this point as a means to sort of leverage? I, you know. I kind of, I feel like, yes. Um, I think it's an interesting choice that they chose the Powell residence and not, say, the Shippens mm-hmm. or um, the Willing House. I mean, they were all in this little neighborhood, but they chose they chose the Powells. And I think it's also interesting that that maybe, maybe he was kind of thinking these people seem to be relatively... Mm-hmm. Um, neutral to all of this and maybe I can I can yeah I can convince them first and they can help me tell others maybe mm-hmm. I don't know if that that's well yeah. it's entirely possible yeah I, maybe that's something that that uh, for subject for future research because yeah know, part of the British strategy right is is they think well there's more loyalists in the south and so you know if we establish a military presence down there they'll rally to our standard but then you know, we don't pay much attention, I think, to the people who are sort of in the middle ground of yeah, the revolution yeah, and how yeah. either side is trying to persuade them yeah. one way or the other uh, to join either the king's standard or this nascent republic. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's there for two weeks, is that right? Two weeks, yeah, only two weeks, and then they yeah. and then they move on. Safe, well, it's, it's safe to say the commission did not succeed in its no. objective because <laughs> um, we're still here. And... Um, so they've made the decision. They they have decided that they are going to make common cause mm-hmm. with the American rebels. And what is their life like in the later uh, years of the war after they've made that choice? Well, less than a year later, they are hosting some kind of party at their residence. Um, and Sarah Franklin Beige writes a letter saying that she to her father saying that she danced with George Washington at their residence, and um, so so in less than a year they have George Washington mm-hmm. in their house compared to this peace commissioner from from Britain. Mm-hmm. So I think that's very interesting. And then um, they began hosting they begin hosting um, more and more of these. Patriot figures. Um, the Marquis de Chateau mm-hmm. stops by there when he's on his travels through Philadelphia. Um, she, Elizabeth, does not contribute to the to the um, Women's Association. Her sister is very involved. Um, so this is so, a, the relief efforts. Yeah, the relief efforts. Um, Samuel does donate some money to the Continental Army, but mm-hmm. he is actually still questioned through the end as to his true feelings about mm-hmm. the cause itself. Um, there's a little write-up in a newspaper talk, using him as an example of these men with great estates who need to be questioned to make sure they are they are for this cause. Uh-huh. Um, and that's never discussed in any correspondence. Um, and also the, the, the Earl 
staying at their, the Earl of Carlisle staying at their residence is never discussed again either. Yeah, I would imagine yeah. that's not going to help. Yeah, it's not going to help help them. Yeah, yeah. So it was a que- uh, there was a, questions about his loyalty to the the Americans on the basis of his perceived opulence, but also sort of the late nature of coming around. Them. Yeah, coming around to everything. So once Elizabeth and Samuel have made their choice, and they are hosting prominent American officials, including George and Martha Washington, mm-hmm. they live next door. What? Uh, what is Elizabeth's life like? What does she in, become involved with, and in, in what are her social relationships like with these prominent American figures? Um, so she she becomes close with the Washingtons. Uh, she becomes close with the Washington family, um, including Bushrod Washington, mm-hmm. Washington's nephew. Um, she she also kind of is ushering in the next generation of the Philadelphia elite. She becomes kind of the senior socialite mm-hmm. of that time, I would say, alongside um, um, Mrs. Morris and um, Mrs. Penn. Mm-hmm. They all they all are kind of interacting in that same sphere. Um, but that's when uh, Anne Willing Bingham, her niece, comes into prominence. And Anne Willing Bingham was the, the great socialite of the late 18th and early 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so she really, she continues to establish her name. There is a lot of correspondence that starts to happen from that time. So mm-hmm. she really was, that's that's really how I've been able to build out her network is through all of the letters that survive from that time. There is an extraordinary amount of primary sources. What, um, what do you think explains the profusion of letters at this point? Is it is it because um, you know, the British have, have evacuated Philadelphia and it's been reclaimed by the Americans? And You know, that that actually, that is a really good thought because in the two letters that survive from the 1770s, she references the fact that these letters are open to to anyone's mm-hmm. eyes. So she she didn't want, doesn't seem like maybe there is much that could have survived from that time because she might she might not have felt comfortable. Um, she's fearing interception she's by the She's fearing British. interception by mm-hmm. the British, exactly. Um, so in the 1780s, that very well, very well could be. Um, her family starts to kind of scatter, some mm-hmm. of them. Um, her sister, Mary Willing Bird, is living in Virginia. Um, but she, she, her, you know, her nieces and nephews are starting to get a little older, and they're moving on, and so she's writing to them. Um, she, she is the central location in Philadelphia, but she has, she's, yeah, she... She becomes the kind of the nexus of a network in a lot yes, of ways yes, as her family yeah. federates out. What does her correspondence, as you as you suggested, that you know, she begins writing more frequently in this period? What is her correspondence, or how does that correspondence shed a light on Washington at this moment? You know, it seems like, especially as the war ends, um, it kind of shows him almost winding down some like they begin to trade um publications back and forth mm-hmm. uh which i think is very interesting and then you know she writes to others and talks about him leaving philadelphia mm-hmm. and eventually him going back to mount vernon um but it, it shows that at first round of his initial retirement i would say and, like and so do you and, and I know you're working on this right now as part of your research project, so we don't want to del- delve into it too deeply. You know, no one wants to give away the keys to the kingdom on, <laughs> on a podcast. But would, would you say then this the fact that they're exchanging publications, you know, 
she and she in a sense kind of sees him, sees her she sees herself excuse me as as his intellectual equal in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah, I would say so. I would absolutely say mm-hmm. so. It seems like their relationship, their their correspondence really revolves around intellectual mm-hmm. um, discussion of, of publications, a little bit of politics. Um, yeah, yeah, she very much saw him as an equal. And I think she saw herself as an equal to mm-hmm. to many men at that time, um, which is, is interesting for a woman of that time to... And is that, do you think that's a product of one, the, the educational opportunity she did have because she was, you know, was able to have, be exposed to, you know, a, a lot of the classical texts and, you know, a lot of the literature of the time, but also a function of, of the revolution itself? Yes. I mean, I think, I think a lot of it might come from her, from her early education. She seems to quote a lot of literature in mm-hmm. her letters, um, this is going way late. You may not need to need have this in there, but she she does purchase a lot of books after Samuel's death. She's mm-hmm. she's constantly reading. Um, she does correspond with, um, and and uh, Stockton and uh-huh. uh, Ferguson. So she she was very much. I think I think a, I think a lot of it comes from her early education, um, in her early life. Um, and I think that with Samuel, he seem to treat her as an equal as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there seems to be a level of, of an intellectual relationship between the two of them. So I think maybe mm-hmm. that gave her the, the, the ability to have this with others, mm-hmm. um, specifically other men. Uh, and, and actually, um, the, uh, Marquis de Chatelou in his, his travels, um, describes the two of them, not just as a married couple, but as two friends living in harmony for 20 years or something oh, along those yeah. lines, which is very interesting. Um, an interesting observation. It, so. it, it, it doesn't suggest really the hierarchy you might suspect. It suggests yes. a, a kind of a leveling. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and he says that she really is the one that seems to run the household. Mm-hmm. And she she not only knew George and Martha, but she had a very prominent and very close friendship with Bushrod. Yes. Uh, future Associate Justice for the Supreme Court. Yes, she did. Um, Bushrod seemed to meet the Powells when he came to Philadelphia to study law. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, again, going into the correspondence. That's That's what's been the most interesting thing about this project. And that's really where I'm at is kind of getting all that correspondence together mm-hmm. and reading through it. Um, they did have a very close relationship and and um, he Bushrod writes back to to home to his mother a couple of times explaining the anecdotes of their relationship um, and what's very interesting though is that while he's in Philadelphia he seems to be very mm. kind of enamored with the Powells and they actually are the ones who there's a there's a great article that came out I think in the there in the in the 1990s, I believe, about um, Bushrod Washington's portrait by Henry Benbridge, and mm-hmm. the Powells actually were the ones who convinced him to go with that uh, paint with that artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they're in Philadelphia, when he's in Philadelphia, they are very um, close. But once he leaves mm. Philadelphia, is when the the kind of there's a there's an interesting set of letters. Um, Cassie Good actually references. Bushrod and Elizabeth's relationship mm-hmm. in um, her book, oh, uh, founding friendships. Founding friendships, talking about um, Bushrod writing Elizabeth multiple times, and Elizabeth does not respond until she finally says, "You've not followed the social etiquette, the protocol, the protocol of the time to write the married woman's husband 
first. Oh. Um, sadly, the letters that he wrote to Elizabeth don't survive, mm-hmm. the letters that he seemed to have written. Um, but then she, she, you know, she chastises him for this, for this, um, for, for him doing this. But then there goes a period of silence and mm-hmm. she actually writes him the, the funny letter about, so he does not write her back for a year and she sends him fur lined gloves for his Herculean hands, which must have gotten frostbite because he had not written her <laughs> in a year. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I want to, I want to, I want to play with all of this, but uh, yeah. for, for a second, but let me, let me ask this question. So is it, so he, she chastises him for not, I guess, for seeking permission from her husband to correspond. Yeah. They've already got, they've already got a, a reasonably close friendship at this point, right? Yes, yes. And so is this is is this a case where she is adhering to social protocol or is this a joke gone bad and he doesn't realize it? That's what I don't know with her. I, I wish I could say one way or the other because those two those two letters that Bushred writes home to his mother um, explain some specific an, an, hmm. explain some specific anecdotes between Elizabeth and him, where she is teasing him quite a bit when he's there in, in a way that is not often seen, I would say. Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, so I don't know. This might be a joke gone bad um, because she had written him once before that, actually, mm-hmm. since he'd left Philadelphia. So it's interesting that she sends one letter, but then suddenly a yeah. couple of months later says, this is why I haven't responded to you. You haven't written to my to my husband. So I don't know. I think she she did seem, I should say, for, for her being so funny and, and and writing these letters, she did seem to have a a, a view of of social protocol and, uh-huh. and following it to a point. Or so she portrays herself in letters. Um, other people kind of see her a little differently. Mm-hmm. There there is um, there are some descriptions of her being a female politician mm-hmm. and a, and and basically talking too much and kind of inserting herself where she might not belong. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is oh, it's very very common. Like yes. women at the time are supposed to stay out of politics. Exactly. And- yes. Yes. But she herself, in a letter to, um, I believe her either her sister or also to, in a letter to a friend, um, does say that she doesn't believe that women should be in politics. So I think she might have she might have had that political knowledge and and kind of presence, mm-hmm. but but in the comfort of her own home, in so, the comfort of her parlor, basically. So but, did she subscribe to what we now call the Republican motherhood? This idea that um, women were not supposed to be directly engaged in politics, but they were supposed to nurture virtue on their husbands and their sons so that they could become virtuous statesmen or see i i don't I don't think so. I think that she was kind of she was orchestrating a lot of these things behind the scenes mm-hmm. almost it seemed like her her presence she she got these men talking to each other at her house mm-hmm. and she got these people interacting. Um, she might not have been out there on the street saying this all publicly, um, but I do think that she was not necessarily subscribing to the Republican motherhood of just like, oh, I'll let my husband be this great mm-hmm. person. And also, maybe she would have had 
she not lost all her sons, but mm-hmm. she was childless yeah. in the in the after 1775. So, so in some ways, she's a kind of a power broker in a sense. Yes, yes, I would say she was kind of a power broker in 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 all of this. So what what do we learn from Bushrod's letters to his mother Hannah about about Elizabeth Powell? Because you know that's that's where we're going to get some of the descriptions where he's writing to somebody else about their relationship. Yes. Yes. Um, God, I wish I had those letters in front of me. I could just straight up read them. It's like we should include them on the (laughs) podcast description. Uh, You know, we learned that she has quite a a presence. Mm -hmm. Um, She is pretty, is is witty. And I I feel like that's such a kind of throwaway word to just say she had a lot of wit, but Mm -hmm. she, she was not afraid to, to, tease someone basically yeah, and, and yeah and kind of and kind of egg someone on and Bushrod was quite a bit younger than her um about 20 but years about younger. 20 years younger yeah yeah and and he seemed in his letters he he seems very kind of enamored with her and right. and which is interesting and she um in a way seems like a like a kind of teasing mother or older sister mm-hmm. almost um she buys him a watch chain after she she does not like the watch chain he's wearing so he Bushra tells his mother <laughs> that he came back the next day and she had a new watch chain for him and told him to wear it in front of her every day uh so she just i mean she just was kind of a i don't know a funny woman like yeah. a funny just kind of a funny but it, and it, like, it seems like intelligent it's, presence. Yeah, like, like, and I, the watch chain is interesting because it's it sounds like she's she's trying to help Bushrod understand how to play the part. Yes, yes, and I would I I would say that yes, she was, and I think she knew how to play the part as a woman, and I think she did maybe want to teach this young man how mm-hmm. to play the part of a of a gentlemen basically yeah. and and um that could also be why with the letter or with him writing her letters after he went back to virginia mm-hmm. she's saying this is not how you do this yeah. um even though we had a close relationship in philadelphia this is not how you would do this to to any other woman sure and, yeah you've got, you got to seek permission first before. exactly yeah yeah so so. Maybe she just didn't explain that that's what she was doing. Yeah, <laughs> just, exactly, exactly, it. because because he because she had already written him a couple of months yeah. prior. So and he clearly wounded. So, I mean, he, he doesn't yeah, write back for a year. He doesn't write back. Yeah, he doesn't write back for a year. But then I guess in the, the ultimate token of their friendship, it sounds like that was she she purchases his judicial robes. Is that she right? She does. Yes, yes. In in April of 1799, mm-hmm. there is a letter from from her to him where she mentions. Um, paying for his black satin robe, and she'll deliver it to him when she sees him next, um, which I think is really just kind of powerful in a way. I yeah. think that's very interesting, and that was very much her her way. She was she teased, and she kind of might have been a little passive aggressive in some of her letters to him, but and to to others, um, but she cared. Deep, mm-hmm. deep down, I think she she did want what was best for others, whether or not they necessarily um, wanted wanted that advice or wanted mm-hmm. wanted that extra care. I don't know. Yeah. She she yeah. Well, the act of of giving him his robes it almost makes her or puts her in the role of a kind of a kingmaker. Like now, I will 
Yeah. I will I will clothe or I will robe you in the or clothe you in the robes of authority. Yes, yes. As a yes. as a judge. Yes, yes. Power broker and a kingmaker. That yeah. was very much that I liked both of those phrases for her. There's your there's the title of your your article right there. Power broker and a kingmaker. That's the title of this podcast. Yeah. I mean, why not? I think I think we've just got that. I think we did. You I just made my life a lot easier. Excellent. When I go Excellent. to edit. Power, now I feel like we need to discuss more of that than the yeah. than just the war. Now it's yeah. Well, this has taken a different. Well, turn. once you'd finish your research, we'll come back to it. But, yeah. And so. And, and how much longer does she live into the, the early years of the Republic? Oh, she lives until 1830. So she... Wow. She lives a long, long life. She actually outlives Bushrod by just under a year, Which I means, think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she outlives all of her siblings. She outlives many of her nieces and nephews. Mm-hmm. Um, she outlives her her old friends, basically. Um and, but at the same time, even though she's outliving all these people, she is still socializing mm-hmm. and kind of the next, next generation seems to visit her and talk with her. And there's lots of letters of, of different people saying they visited her, took tea with her. Um, she outlives Samuel, her husband, by 37 years um, wow. without him. So. What, and what is, uh, you, she, you said she's still engaged in society. And so what, what's her life like? In the early 19th century. So she moves from the house that still survives in Philadelphia, um, the Powell House, which is an amazing place and everyone should visit. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you can keep that in there, but... Uh, well, we're, we're, she, allowed, we're allowed to promote. Yeah, yeah, Philadelphia landmarks. Yeah. Uh, she So she moves. She moves in 1798. Um, there's kind of a period where I, I cannot seem to place where she is, but mm-hmm. then she moves into a mansion... On Chestnut Street, um, which is just just down the way from Independence Hall, um, and that's where she begins hosting people again on her, on her own this mm-hmm. time. Um, and her niece Anne Willing Bingham has died, so she's she's hosting these things alone. Um, she still seems to enjoy having people come to her. She gradually becomes sicker as she gets older. Right. Um, but I mean, even about four years before she dies, there's still people mentioning in letters, oh, we took tea with Mrs. Powell. Oh, mm-hmm. we dined at Mrs. Powell's. Um, Nellie Park Custis is uh, one. Yes. Um, yes. She continually references Mrs. Powell, her mm-hmm. her her dear friend, Mrs. Powell. Um, her, yeah, yeah, revered friend, Mrs. Powell. Uh, so, so, yeah, so her, her life was... Still good. And mm-hmm. she actually, that's, she begins keeping her own financial records then. And there's just an amazing set of financial records showing what all she was buying. That's when she begins oh. buying a lot of books of her own. She yeah. starts subscribing to the Phillips uh, Circulating Library, mm-hmm. which eventually ends up being owned by a woman, which I think is very interesting. Oh, I just I learned didn't that. Know that. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah. Uh, Lydia Phillips. Um, and so she's she's reading quite a bit. She's purchasing a lot of things for her house, a lot of furniture, does a lot of um, gradual repairs, mm-hmm. ends up, which I think I think all of that shows that she was still kind of on display in a way, yeah. even though she was older. She still had a beautiful home, and she mm-hmm. wanted people to come and see and and be in this beautiful home. Mm-hmm. So so. So yeah. she's in a lot of ways still the center of. of one of the centers of gravity yes, of, of yes. Philadelphia politics yes, and society well yeah. into her later years. John Adams visits her, John Quincy Adams. Um, well, d- John Adams does not visit her. 
he writes about her. John mm-hmm. John Quincy Adams visits her. Mm-hmm. Um, Louisa Adams visits her. She was she developed a relationship with Abigail Adams too in the 1790s. Oh, when mm-hmm. yes, yes. So Abigail references her in some letters, um, and then their their son um, also references her in letters. So wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, she and is, has anyone ever written sort of like a major biography of her? There is a wonderful little piece, um, I shouldn't say little, it's about 90 pages, mm-hmm. uh, written in 2006, analyzing a portrait of her mm-hmm. um, that's currently at the Powell House, and it does have a biography within it, but um, it's not its not a very comprehensive biography. Um, it's great, though. It's been an amazing tool for mm-hmm. me to kind of start my own research. Um, David Maxey is the author, and he is a he is a wonderful, wonderful person and has been very helpful and, and, and we're recent, we've recently been talking again. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but no, there's not a comprehensive biography written about her, truly comprehensive biography written about her. So, well, we've got, you know, we have recent biographies, there's, you know, the new biography of Esther Reed that came out was it the last year, I think. Um, and then, uh, some recent biographies of Peggy Ship and Arnold, including in our friend and colleague, Dr. Charlene Boyer-Lewis, yes. who is writing one right now. Yes. Um, and so it looks like, looks like there's a little opportunity there, there. There is some opportunity in that, that, that is something I am pursuing that opportunity. So. Well, when you crank it out, come on back. And I will. Absolutely. You know where to find me. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> All, right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Sam, very yes, much. You're very welcome. This has been great. Yeah. This has been great. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, sure. Thanks for listening to Conversations at the Washington Library, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with assistance from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.